0: Okay, well, given that um there are five people here, which is good, and it is after five o'clock, um I'll start the class. It's Jeff Robinson here, um uh, unit chair and lecturer. Um can people just indicate if they're able to hear me okay? Okay, good. Okay. Well, great. Um, I'll get started there, and I'll, I'll start, first of all, um, actually just one thing that uh, I noticed a few people were asking me about, um, the marks for topic six. Um, I realised there was one button I'd failed to press in the process of setting up the quiz for that week and the marks weren't transferring across to the grade book, um, but I've now done that. so. Um, all of the marks should have been moved um, across there. Um, so I'll just get started as I usually do by asking if people have got any um, general queries or issues they'd like to raise about the unit. Now that you can't hear anything, um, other people can hear me? OK. Uh, righto. Uh, not sure what perhaps okay. Okay um so I was asking yeah if people had any um, general well, nothing would surprise me about um these updates uh That's about the limit of my knowledge about these potential problems. But yeah, Chrome does seem to, to work better um, getting this part of, the, of Blackboard running than Safari does so. Um, so have people got any general queries or questions about the unit at the moment that they would like to um, raise? Okay, well, I'll take that as being no particular questions at the moment. Um, I know people have been entertained by the presence of my cat. Um, I had an email from somebody who listens to these recordings saying how, he, how impressed he was by the cat. I'd have to nice the cat, however, has gone on drive today and is um, sound asleep on the couch. So, um, uh, no appearance by Tabby today, I would guess. Um, Okay, so now the recording of the class at Warn Ponds uh, should be available, and um, that sort of there is a resource for people to use. Um, And what I sort of started before I did the um, lecture component at both um, Warren Ponds and Burwood was to talk a bit about conservatism as a system of belief and also as a way of life. And one way I did this was um, I invited people to look at a list of um, statements. Oh, okay. Uh, not, sh- not sure. OK, um, So I invite people to look at a list of um, statements, you know expressions of personal views, and you know, to think about how they might fit in terms of thinking about the idea of conservatism. So just give me a moment, and I'll bring up that um, list. Okay, I can't bring that up, I realise, because it won't allow me to share Word documents. Um What I might I'll just type an example of what I have in mind then. Um, So yeah, say somebody said nineties were the greatest decade in music. Um uh, Nirvana Forever, I can't stand any of this current music that the kids listen to. Is that a conservative statement, do you think? Would you call somebody who said that a conservative? No. What if somebody said, anybody else agree or disagree with this expression of cultural taste? uh, Could it be seen as being a form of conservatism? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that conservatism can have multiple meanings. So you can have a kind of sort of small C conservatism, And people sometimes call this a dispositional conservatism or a symbolic conservatism. I don't like the idea of change. I'm conservative about how I manage my money. I'm conservative in my musical tastes or something like that. Nostalgic, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily lead to a political form of conservatism. Now, it can. I mean, if you look perhaps at you know some of the appeal of populist conservatives, a lot of populist conservatives are about saying to people, well, you think things were better back in the good old days. You should vote for me because I will bring back the good old days. So transforming a kind of dispositional or symbolic conservatism into an operational one. And what conservative politics is really about i think in a way in terms of getting building majority support is about talking to these people and saying you know well you think the 90s were the greatest decade in music therefore um, taxes should be lower on big business which might seem a kind of fair jump from those two assumptions but you can make a kind of argument there and that's what conservative politics does it sort of tries to build on the fact that lots of people are conservative in these kind of small ways, but then wants to persuade people well that actually has broad political implications you know it should impact how you vote how you think about economic policy and other things does, does that kind of division make any sense to people um, as a way of talking about conservatism one thumbs up, which is good for um, a Friday afternoon. Does it make sense to anybody else? It probably is actually. Um, mind you, I know lots of people who are traumatized by um, Morrissey's are. Uh, political evolution and uh giving away their old Smith's records in a state of great upset. Well, I know one person actually, but I know there are I presume there must be lots of people who think the same way that he does. Um Yeah, so that in a way is what conservatism is um about. And that means I think that Parties and ideologies are important for conservatism because what you're trying to do is to unite a broad coalition of people, people who might have particular grievances about one or the other aspects of the world. You want to encourage them to come together and form a united political front. So the evidence is, for example, that voters for conservative parties tend to disagree more about policy issues than voters for left-wing parties do. Because voters for conservative parties tend to be a mix of people who are, you know, just down the line free market types or, you know, social conservatives, but they also include lots of people who um you know are potentially suspicious of the free market, a sort of nationalist and protectionist and so on. And one of the reasons why Conservative parties have done well in some countries is that they've been able to appeal to a broader basis of voters by appealing to voters who have left-wing economic views but who might have um, right-wing views on other issues. Um, And Trump's an example of that. And I think we can see Boris Johnson in Britain as well um, as potentially doing this. So, yeah, that's sort of what I sort of talked about in the part of the classes before the actual um, lecture itself. Um, but you know, I did put some images up on the screen and so on and they should be recorded there. Now, the three questions for this week um, relate to aspects of conservative um, politics in Australia and elsewhere. And the first is the article by um, Wayne Errington, um, which is from a few few years ago, but from this useful book on political party organisation in Australia. And I don't really think the Liberal Party has changed much since then. So the first part of the question um, is why does Errington argue that the project of reforming the organisation of the Liberal Party has had little success. Because from time to time, people in the Liberal Party have said the party structure should be changed, it should be more democratic and participatory and so on. But those ideas really haven't gone anywhere. Um, any ideas about why um, that might be the case? Nada, go ahead.
1: Because of their uh, electoral success? I think was what was said. Um, yeah, electoral su- uh, success at the federal level.
0: Uh, it yes.
1: leads to ignorance of the issues and um, and they also lack leadership. I think that's what yes. was
0: written. Yeah, I mean, and I see Luke said that also as well. So. Um, if a political party is successful, it's often reluctant to change. Um, if you look at the Labor Party, actually, the branch of the Labor Party that is the most resistant to reform and changing its operations is the Victorian Labor Party because the Victorian Labor Party has done pretty well. Um, might be the case in WA as well, but um, I don't know WA that well. But particularly for Conservative parties, because they're focused on winning. You know, the name of the game is to win, the name of the game is to defeat your opponents, and hence there's a lack of interest in reforming the structure of a party um, when it's successful, and it's been pretty successful for a long time, um, um, particularly at the federal level. Um, not doing too badly in the states as well, um, although obviously there are some states where and, and so on. Yeah, so that would be the sort of response, I think, to the first um, uh, question there. Um, it was interesting actually reading the um, article by Errington. Um, I was reminded of Peter Reith. Um, anybody ever heard of or remember Peter Reith as a federal politician? Peter who?
1: Peter Reith. Oh, sorry, it's already on. I'm sorry, don't <laughs> yeah, yeah. on. I hope I wasn't saying all
0: sorts of things for myself. No, no, you won't, no, 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 not at all. All good. Uh, I mean, Reef actually, you know, long-serving liberal politician, but um, a bit of an innovator, I mean, he wanted a, He was keen, I think, on having a directly elected presidential republic and various other things. Um, Hated unions with a passion, Um, so pretty standard Liberal in that regard. Yeah, but he actually wanted the party um, to have a directly elected president, where the party members could actually vote on choosing the president of the Liberal Party. Um, Is that the sort of idea you think Scott Morrison would be keen on, having a directly elected president of the Liberal Party? If you were a Liberal Prime Minister, would you be keen on having that? No. Um, having a high-profile president um, is usually bad for a party leader. Um, God, getting flashbacks here. Anybody ever heard of a guy called John um, Elliott? No. Um, Big in the 80s and 90s, Melbourne businessman, um, president of the Carlton Football Club, I think, Liberal Party president, um, liked a beer and a smoke and had a sort of hyper-aggressive masculine style. Um, But he was a constant problem for liberal opposition leaders because as party president, he really upstaged um, John Howard and Andrew Peacock when they were party leaders. So yeah, you don't want um, a directly elected leader And I I had no idea who the current president of the Liberal Party is, but of course I Googled it and found out that he's a former state premier from years ago who was um, elected unopposed and he was just elected by the party executive. So the party is very much oligarchical and top down, fitting with conservative ideas of leadership. Um, So the second sort of part of that question is, yeah. How, how active is the membership of the Liberal Party in policy formation, by and large, um, in Errington's description?
2: I think, I'm sorry, I'm just skimming through the reading now. Yeah. I think I saw him say that it has a small amount of membership and also a, they have low motivation. So maybe not in general, but maybe compared to, say, the membership of the Labor Party, for example. They're a lot less active and less passionate.
0: I think there's some truth I mean, the membership of the Labour Party is pretty inert, I suspect, as well. But yeah, Liberal membership I think is aging and in decline. Um, I think so. last week you know, I talked about, you know, due to Brett's thesis, that you know, there was that kind of post war generation of middle class people who joined organizations mm-hmm. and they joined the Liberal Party in large numbers. But in recent decades you've really seen the demise of that and party membership is actually quite low. That renders the party vulnerable to stacking. So in Victoria, there's quite a high percentage of Mormons on the State Liberal Party executive. um, When there are very few Mormons in Victoria, almost none, but they've been organised successfully by one or the other um, power figure in the party. And because party membership is low, um, yeah, you know, they've been able to stack it out. So yeah, it's not much involved in policy formation, I think. Um Nana, oh, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was also reading that um they were funded by um uh they had a lot large funding. Yes. So like well, from a private private funding. And I'm wondering if that's just any kind of party in general or is it very particular to the Conservative Party?
0: Both Labor and, uh, and the Libs get business funding, but the Libs have done a lot better out of it recently, which is partially business-liking the Libs, but also the fact that Labor's been pretty unsuccessful. So, um, But yeah, both of them do um, get a substantial amount of corporate funding. and. Um, And so on. Um, The Greens not that much, Um, but the guy actually who set up—I think it's still going. Have people ever heard of the website um, What If? It's used as a hotel booking site. Um, The founder of that apparently donated um, lots of money to the Greens um, a few years ago. But by and large, um, the Greens don't have. Australian political parties—people just don't join them compared to. Even if you go back like 50 or 60 years, not very many people join parties in Australia, unlike Europe. I might have a theory about that I might talk about next week. Um, but yeah, um, so very much you know, a classic model of Conservative Party. Nada, go ahead.
1: Oh, It just made me, it reminded me of how um, all the radical scholars hate Judith Butler because she was funding Kamala Harris for such a long time.
0: Uh, <laughs> I saw Pe
2: yeah, is American of course,
0: one. where your individual donations are recorded, or something like that um, and
1: yeah.
0: well, it 's actually harder for american i don 't know much about American funding, but it 's actually harder for American corporations to donate directly to political parties than it is in australia there's a Australian mm. system is pretty permissive and not very transparent and um Labor and government hasn't done much to improve that at all. And of course, at the state level, of course, Labor go- been, uh, Labor's been notorious there. Yeah.
1: Has there been any kind of um, people pushing back and trying to expose a lot of these structures, or is it just not done?
0: It's been a consistent thing that some civil society organisations, some people in the Greens, have b- been very active campaigning against. Corporate funding. Lee Briannon, who was a Green senator for some years, was very active in that, and had had a website running it, and so on. But since she's left Parliament um, after some internal tension in the Greens, that I think their sort of focus has moved a little bit off it. They sort of you know Banter I think, prefers the kind of criticism of corporate funding, you know, and business, and so on, was a very kind of you know Bob Brownie sort of Green Green thing. Smaller liberal. Bant sort of prefers more to push the kind of Green New Deal sort of stuff. So I just think they're talking um, about it less. But, of course, I mean this was one of the arguments for setting up public funding at political parties was to say, isn't it bad that they're influenced by business giving them money? But, of course, parties just take the public funding and get the money from business as well. Um, Surprise, surprise there. Yeah. Um, But I'll talk more about that actually in week 12. In week 11, this idea of cartel parties and parties becoming merged with the state and relying on state support and funding is part of that. Yeah. Yes, that's Errington. I mean, it's it's a little bit dated, the article, but not much has changed since then. And Errington is pretty well plugged into these um, networks um, as well, I think. Now, the second question is by Roger Scruton. Um, Has anybody ever heard of um, Roger Scruton as a writer? Um, Wrote a very strange but very big book on sex, actually. trying to adopt a Hegelian conservative approach to thinking about sex, which was unusual. But he died a couple of years ago, but he was probably the leading conservative philosopher, I think, of the last 20 or 30 years, very much relying on Hegel in particular, I think, when he started out. But of course, he gave less emphasis to the kind of Hegelian fact. You know, I mean, if you read his early stuff, he's not keen on the free market at all. But, of course, then conservatives discovered neoliberalism and he went with the pack. But it's early stuff. is It sort of anticipates some of the more recent sort of anti-liberal stuff, um, the conservatives. Uh, anyway, this is him writing in 1980. And he says, well, that thinking about politics... Just excuse me. I've just got a text message. I've got a mess here. Uh... going to suggest to my wife that she buys pizza for dinner or something yeah it's been a long day um
1: i I thought it was your cat uh no messaging you that she needs uh, her dinner
0: um well i think he he does want his dinner actually but he's just sitting over there sleeping peacefully but as soon as i move towards the the tin he'll wake up in a frenzy of excitement and fall off the couch um so scuden says that when conservatives are thinking about politics what they want to see is a politics of factions, not a politics of movements. What do people think Scruton might mean there? Mark, go ahead.
2: I'm just gonna take a wild guess because this is just what came to my head when I read the question. I'm thinking like because conservatism in generally likes to slow progress and keep things the way they are. I feel like faction is good for that, because disagreement is a reason not to change, because you can say oh, there's not unanimous consent consent on a change, whereas a movement is trying to grow unanimous cons- consent towards progressing towards something. That is not that
0: far off, actually, what he's suggesting. Nada, go ahead. Not were you think saying? It <laughs> was
1: something about. Yeah, am I am I
0: alright? Yes, yes, go ahead. Oh.
1: Um, it was something about um, factions um, form a party, so it becomes a party politics. Uh, whereas, um, if you have a movement, then it might challenge the overall structure, and they don't want that kind of radical reform.
0: Yes, and that's also, yeah, what sort of Luke and um, Kirstie are uh, chiming in there as well. Yeah, and, you know, a British conservative writing in 1980, when you think about movement, you think of the Labor movement, and you think of you know how British politics was plagued by class conflict, and that the Labor Party was seen to a degree as representing the trade union movement. So he is saying that politics should be kind of sportfully elite. You know, you want elite factions contending, but you don't want them to be engaging with movements that are potentially trying to bring about social change. Um, and of course, eventually, of course, in a way, that's what he got. You know, the Labour Party, after losing, 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 said, "Well, let's just become a kind of faction. Let's, you know, just become a kind of political party contending for power, reduce our ties to unions and social movements." Um, and Corbyn came along and tried to reverse that and now they're running back in the other direction. Yeah, that's what New Labour was about. You know, it was about defining Labour in that sense, just as a contender for power within a political system rather than in any sense a representative of the social movement. Um, uh, but yeah, so What Scruton is expressing there, I think, you know, is a particular view of what politics should be about, you know, that it should be confined and limited to that aspect of to a struggle for power between elites, but because a broader struggle potentially divides and weakens the state and destroys authority. Um, anybody else got any other thoughts on the Scruton reading? Okay. Um, yes, basically, because the argument was that being left-wing made the party unelectable, um, which is, of course, the argument that's sort of being made right now across my Twitter timeline after the bad electoral results in Britain um, last night. Um, the Scruton book, actually, it's it's I think by. I think, by a long way, it's the best expression of a conservative philosophy of politics I've seen, because it is not liberal. Yeah, you know, he says you know, conservatism is not based on liberalism, it's based on quite a different view of the world, which he derives from Hegel, mostly. I mean, I don't agree with it, but I think it's the best expression of a kind of consistently conservative political philosophy, I think there is um, out in my opinion. OK. And the final reading is, well, Jesse, it's a problem, actually. I mean, I've read a fair bit of screws and stuff, and he sort of ties himself a bit in knots. But what you do say you're against socialism. Most of all, socialism is the threat. You know, the idea of a movement trying to transform the social order and overthrow authority is really bad. You might not be entirely keen on neoliberalism, but it's better than socialism. And you can find common ground with neoliberals in terms of resisting the project of socialism, um, which is what happened with Margaret Thatcher. Um, and in the yeah you know, in the book actually, you know, this is written yeah you know, probably written just as Thatcher came to power, and he, he he expresses concern that the conservatives are being too influenced by market by market liberal ideas. Um, but he sees the defeat of socialism and, you know, the threat that it poses to the unity of the state as being absolutely paramount and that has to be defeated. Um, this is fusionism, you know. This is why Deacon and Reid joined together in 1909. You know, even though in the Australian context, even though, you know, Deacon hated Reid, because he thought Reid was a slobbish reactionary and Reid thought that Deacon was an up-himself pseudo-intellectual poser. But despite that, they joined forces. Um, to oppose the threat of socialism. Um, okay. The third reading is from this book by um Daniel um, Zyblatt, um which is probably the sort of big buzz book of this kind of historical social science at the moment, I think. It's 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 been very popular and talked about a lot. And Zyblatt is Trying to consider how conservatives responded to democracy. And basically he says, well, there were two sort of different r- responses conservatives could make to the coming of democracy. Any ideas about what these two different responses were that conservatives could make? Yes, so you might say, well, we have to set up a political party, we have to try to win elections, Um, we have to do that sort of thing. Any ideas on what the sort of more traditionalist or second option um, might be? Yes. Luke, well, you, know, you might rely on you know, traditional social deference. You know, so the landholder you know, could tell the peasants, you know, vote conservative or else you will be thrown off your land. Um, the priest could be brought in to tell people how to vote. Um, you could prevent the left-wing party from campaigning. You could rig the election result potentially by controlling um, the government. And These two different kinds of approaches, and Zyblatt's book is, is re- mostly about a comparison between Germany and Britain, because in Germany the Conservatives relied a lot on this more traditional approach, um, using their traditional social power, their control of institutions, um, you know, the power of landholders over workers and so on. Um, Rather than actually forming an effective political party, um, whereas the British Conservatives um, did, somewhat surprisingly, you know, and adopted a. A lot of Zyblack's book is about you know how organised the Conservatives were, you know, employing people full time in each electorate to campaign and organise, and having a very systematic structure. Um, whereas in Germany, the Conservatives were always disunited and chaotic, um, so. There are sort of two different approaches, the first half of the question. Um, and Seiblat then has a view about which of these strategies was more conducive to democracy, to the stabilization of democracy. He, he really argues that the fate of democracy in Europe depended a lot on what conservatives did. Um, anybody pick up on what his interpretation of these two different approaches, their political impact was? Yes, elites felt more comfortable with democracy. Um, when conservatives were politically successful, elites were less worried about democracy. Um, I have doubts about the sort of implications of the argument. Although in the last chapter of the book, he sort of qualifies the argument somewhat, um, but it it still is a very impressive book in terms of the research and the use of all sorts of interesting statistical um, tools and so on to try to work out what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, so say so, so you had a very, say so you had a Conservative Party, but it had a very loose and fragmentary organisation. Could that be a problem for democracy if a Conservative Party had a very permeable and loose organization that could be easily taken over,
2: I suppose if it was very easy for i guess you could probably say maybe that's something today, um like the extreme right wing views to take over their party because of the fact that it was the structure was so loose they might find that destabilizes the democracy,
0: yeah, and this is now. When Zyblatt's book came out, you know, people talked a lot about Trump and the American Republicans, and he talked about it, you know, saying, "Well, the American Republicans are an example of a very permeable party. You know, Trump was able to come out of nowhere, basically, and take the party over, and party elites were powerless to stop him, and eventually, party elites gave in and mostly went along with him." But Zyblatt talks a lot about Germany in the 1920s, where The German conservatives were effectively taken over by a cashed-up businessman of extreme, of extreme right-wing views, and he steered the party towards um, close cooperation with the Nazis. And the conservatives ended up playing a a significant role in the downfall of democracy. You know, even though though, their vote share was down to about 10 or 15 percent. That was pretty important in the context of them throwing their support behind Hitler, and that this guy, um, this this businessman, was you know, able to run this kind of sort of populist rebellion against party elites, saying you know we need to restore German greatness, make Germany great again, you know destroy the socialists, um, team up with the Nazis, and um, we were successful in doing so. Whereas in Britain. Yeah, there were fascists in Britain, but the Conservative Party remained controlled by elites um, and really didn't let them get a foot in the door, mostly. So this is Seibleth's argument about democracy. Now, he's trying to explain, well, why does democracy succeed or fail? And he says, well, one reason are these events that happen in conservative politics, how they respond to the challenge of democracy, whether they sort of decide to reluctantly go along with it or they decide to fight it all together. Um, Yes, Nada, go ahead.
1: It's a really strange reading of the whole thing, given that, I mean, in in British, (laughs) it's like, okay, so the world imperialist power that tried to colonize everyone in the world that committed all these genocide and whatever, uh, they're going to keep the Nazis, <laughs> you know what i mean i'm just like wait my head hurts no
0: well i yeah i see that that um you know that you could argue well that yeah if I a mean, leak are having to remain in power maybe yeah. that shows that democracy is really a fraud
1: yeah.
0: um you know um is he saying, well, you can't really have democracy; you have to appease elites one way or the other? And in the last chapter, he sort of suggests he's not really saying that, but you could sort of read the argument almost, I think, as having that kind of viewpoint. You know, so yes, Britain was a democracy, but the British Empire wasn't. um You know, people in India couldn't vote for the British Parliament, and they paid a very high price for not being able to vote for the British Parliament in terms of famines and dispositions and so on. Um, yeah, and obviously, you know, the decline of the American empire and so on, you could think about some parallels there potentially. Um, well,
1: and also isn't like the parties on the left also um, very much ran by elites, so... More Is and more, not, yeah. yeah, but um, even from the beginning, I mean, at least in the US context, I would think that we're all elites from the beginning. I'm not, I'm not so sure about here, but.
0: Yes, uh, different factions of elites, but yeah, yeah America never,
1: had a
0: yeah, there, there are moments in America, so it seems to develop towards a more radical and participatory politics, but that ebbs pretty quickly i think um because the system is so strong and resistant um to that but yeah i mean it's been a very influential book and it is a interesting argument and some very clever research techniques that he uses to try to work out what was going on in the past you know when you can't go back and interview people but he finds out all sorts of interesting ways of trying to potentially work out what they were thinking and so on um but you could raise some questions about it. Okay, well that's the sort of three questions. Um anybody got any other queries or issues you yeah, know they'd like to raise about it. any of the readings or the questions for this, this week. See it's getting very really dark everywhere. Oh. Okay, well on that basis then I'll close up things for this week. Um I must admit, when I've, I've been in a flat chat all day and I see there are a lot of seven posts or something on the cloud site that I haven't responded to. So if anybody has posted a question or anything like that, I will take a look at it now and respond to people. Um, but otherwise, um, it's good night for me. And Tabby's actually turned up and jumped on the table. So hello, hello. Tabby says, hello. Hi,
1: Tabby.
0: Yeah. I can't
1: see you because it's too dark
0: uh yes well he's pretty dark as well so oh okay
1: Okay. see you all next week thank you
0: bye